Welcome. My name is Robert Enlow. I'm the president and CEO of EdChoice, and I'm joined by my dear friend, Susan Mitchell, who, along with me, in fact, longer than me, has served in the school choice movement as a, as a beacon of what good, good practice and good policy and good thinking is. And so we're super happy to have this podcast and discussion with Susan to talk about sort of some of the early days of the movement and what we've learned and what we, we need to get better and what we got right and some things we forgot. So I guess, you know, one of the fun ways we can start here, Susan, is like, so what is it that people don't know about the beginning of the sort of parental school choice movement that they should know? I think what people don't know any longer, especially the young reformers, is the story of how this got started when there were no models. And we were figuring out what to do as we went along in Milwaukee. I think a lot of the lessons we learned still are valuable. So I think the story has merit. What were some of the lessons that you learned early on that, that are still valuable today? Well, I think we started out with the notion that a strong and diverse coalition was really important and that we needed a coalition that showed legislators that parents, not just parents, but employers, uh, parents, community leaders, others in Milwaukee needed opportunities for for children to learn more, to graduate, to have chances in life ahead of them. And so we devised a strategy to try to promote that, and we learned some lessons along the way. So you look at that kind of coalition building, that kind of effort to bring people together, which, you know, obviously EdChoice is totally supportive of and does that as much as we can. Has that stood the test of time, or did this movement sort of get away from that kind of thinking for a while? It's hard for me to evaluate. You know, I've been out of the, the front lines for nearly 10 years now, so I'm not really tuned into what lots of people are doing in other states. But I think the old lessons still apply, and when they're not heated, things go wrong. For example, I think it's really, really important for a coalition to focus on a goal, to stay unified, to build the best policy possible and not negotiate among themselves, to avoid the temptation to make what looks like a gain but really isn't a gain and therefore diminish the opportunity for real gains down the road. So I think all of those things still pertain. And the better that people do that, the more valuable the accomplishments. I think that, that's right. So now let's take a quick break and ask you a funny question. What was one of the funniest memories you have from the early days of this movement? Robert, I don't remember anything funny. <laughs> All I remember are moments when everything that we had worked for might have collapsed. One example, in Wisconsin, the expansion of the program in 1995 occurred in the budget writing committee, and we were down to the last day of the session, the last votes in that committee and the expansion that we thought was moving ahead that would enlarge the program and include religious schools was on the bubble because one Republican senator said at the last minute that he wouldn't vote for it. And what I remember is then Governor Thompson called that senator into his office. The senator came out and voted for the program. And I breathed a huge sigh of relief and waiting to see uh, the governor again and ask him how that happened. I'd love that. I mean, it's the program. That's great. 
that reminds me, of course, I mean, I think our governor here in Indiana 10 years ago, Mitch Daniels, learned from Tommy Thompson on that. So there were a number of people he called into the office and said, hey, we're going to do this, right? And I think it passed at the last second, so I get it. If you look back and then you look forward, do you think the school choice movement has progressed the way you thought it would? Do you think we'd be where we are today? Looking back in the day, do you say, hey, in 25 years, here's where I think we'll be. Do you think that we've accomplished that? Have we gotten to where you thought we'd be? And what progress have we made? Well, let me give you two different observations on that. In the years following the expansion in Wisconsin, I became disappointed because I had expected then that other states would look at Wisconsin and say, oh, we can do better than that. And instead, states looked at Wisconsin and said, well, we can't quite get there. So we're going to do a little bit less than they did in Wisconsin. That disappointed me. And I really didn't expect that at all. I thought people would look across the fence and say, wow, we want more of this. And that didn't happen initially. Fast forward to today, one of the greatest silver linings of the pandemic is that it has brought us support that we could not have bought, organized, whatever in any of the years prior to this. So people who don't even know they like school choice now support school choice. They may not call it that, but they understand the value of options for parents. And I think that's huge. And I think that many states are are reaping the benefits. And I just couldn't be more delighted to see that kind of progress. You know, I I couldn't agree more. And I look, I think you're right. The early stage of this movement, that it made a grand bargain to keep that coalition together, which is we'll we'll continue to look at Milwaukee as the high point of choice, as opposed to as I used to say, we should move from Milwaukee to Milton in terms of everyone getting choice, right? And so I think that bargain was made. And I think the pandemic, you're right, has changed the way that this is being looked at. Now, people are looking at choice, not in terms of public or private or charter schools. They're just looking at all sorts of different opportunities and different learning environments. I think that's neat. You know, one of the things that people forget when you talk about a movement or you you talk about an effort is who was there at the beginning and what they were doing and how important they were. So I'd love to hear from you some of the people in the early days of the movement or in your time in the movement that we don't talk enough about. And our listeners can sort of say, hey, this person is important to what went on in the early days. Well, we had a lot to learn early on. But as I said earlier, I always felt strongly that a very diverse coalition was the way to tell legislators the story. So among that cast of characters was the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce, led then for the first year as president, his first year as president by Tim Shee, and a group of really, really courageous CEOs who went to Governor Thompson and said, expanding parent choice is the most important thing to us in the upcoming budget. We can't find employees ready for prime time. We need to improve educational results in Milwaukee, and we think this is the way to do it. We also benefited from a large number of private schools and parents, none of whom had school choice, or very few of whom had school choice at that point, and who trusted us to join forces with us, get on buses, go to Milwaukee, tell stories, and say, my child can't read. I need this. My child can't read. We want more of this. And then there were other community leaders who helped in in particular, for example, John Gardner, a labor organizer who had 
worked with Cesar Chavez and taught me how to organize parents. I would have been way too tentative and polite. And he was the one who said, Susan, you have to sit down at the kitchen table and say, I need you. I need your help. Be with me. And we hired a crew of parents who did exactly that and wound up being able to tell these stories and show legislators that this had a very, very human face. That was critical. So I want to come back to some of the unsung heroes, but I want to follow that track a little bit further because I think it's so important. My experience of this movement is sometimes when people go talk to parents, they are tentative or they don't treat them as they treat everyone else, right? There's some kind of kid gloves treatment because it's a parent. But if you treat the parents with respect and dignity and say, this is what I need and are very upfront, they're going to be on your side more and more. And I think that's a really good lesson to learn. I totally agree. There has been an attitude in some quarters in Wisconsin that low-income parents in particular just aren't smart enough to make good choices. And I always hated that thought because they love their children largely as much as anyone else loved their children. And people with money make bad decisions as well. So I never had any reluctance to give more power to the parents. And I still think it's critically important. And I think they sensed that. They had a seat at the table. They were very important. And they would get on buses and tell stories and do rallies, despite the fact that none of this existed yet. And they were critical to achieving these goals. Do you think that's something missing from sort of the modern movement right now, the sort of parents at the table? You know, I don't know, Robert, because I'm not close enough to what people in other states are doing. I I just know that I think it remains extremely important. And one thing I am happy to see individuals who did benefit from school choice telling their stories. I think that's just wonderful to have people come out the other end and say, here's what it meant to me. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think there are a lot of storytelling that's going on. I'm not sure at the policy design table, there's still parent representatives anymore. I mean, still being in this movement. And so I think that while I think there's a lot more storytelling, which is great, I'm not sure that in the the real central sort of policy coalition or real coalition, there's a lot of parents involved yet. I mean, they're around, but they're not in the making decisions. And I want to say that one of the lessons I learned from you is you can't design good policy if you don't have your end customer in mind, which is parents in schools, right? You know, you make me recall an instance where a legislator in a Western state asked me to come and and take a look at a a piece of legislation. And I took it overnight and I diagrammed the process that would result if the legislation were passed and took it back to him the next morning. And I said, this isn't going to work for parents. Mm -hmm. And here's why. They have a window of 10 days and that's all to engage in a very cumbersome process you need to stand in the shoes of the parents and secondarily stand in the shoes of the schools and say, how is this going to actually work for people? And I think that remains a, an absolutely critical aspect of looking at legislation and its goodness, because once you pass it, it's much harder to repair it and undo damage than it is to get it right in the first place. I couldn't agree more. We often spend time going back to fixing what we failed to do right in the first place, which is a lot of time and effort we shouldn't do. You know, I want to return to some of the unsung heroes of the movement. I mean, you obviously you are a hero of the movement. Your husband, George, is a hero of the movement. You guys early on were doing all that work. Who are some other folks 
you know, but you mentioned Tim. Who are some other groups and organizations and folks that were there and, and have helped get the sort of movement going to where it is? Well, one of the things I learned early on was that at that stage, at least, it was very hard to draw organizations into the coalition. They had boards of directors. They were nervous. They weren't sure what this was going to look like. And so we really focused on leaders. John Norquist, then mayor of Milwaukee, was one of those. He always understood why school choice would be good for Milwaukee, and he was interested in a much more expansive program, as was Governor Thompson, who was very, very willing to be more expansive than the legislature turned out to be with that enlargement. There were other community leaders, and we did go after them very specifically, religious leaders, different denominations, specific business leaders, people who were willing to stand up, take the heat, not be afraid of it. And those were the people in the early days. There were no national organizations at the time, so there was no one else to call on. And frankly, had we done that, we would have diluted the impact of showing legislators that this was really an up from the grassroots kind of situation coming from Milwaukee. We didn't hire professional lobbyists. We did it all ourselves. Yeah, we've come a long way since then. I'm not sure it's a good or bad thing in some ways, but as someone who's did this for such a long time, and, and, and for the listeners out there, you should know how important Susan Mitchell is to the origins of everything that has gone forward in school choice, setting the groundwork for how to organize, how to behave, how to set coalitions up, I mean, Ed Choice, I promise you, follows her coalition guidelines to this day because it's so important. So when you look back, Susan, what do you think was one of your biggest accomplishments in the sort of school choice movement? I am so happy that we were able to enact the expansion in 1995 and include religious schools. And, and we spent 10, 15 years after that in court defending against legislative onslaughts, defending against excessive regulation. We hit the enrollment cap that would have really killed the program. But I think we created a basis there for defending, strengthening, expanding that really pleases me to this day. And it just is a delight to see all of this going on in other states now. I, I really, it makes me happy. Yes, I agree. And I thank you for that because I think the Milwaukee experience that got through the courts, right, which took a long time. I remember that, right? So that was the sort of first case on the Blaine Amendments that just started tumbling them down, right? So we're now to Espinoza, which is basically, you know, public money can go to private institutions and religious institutions without fear of violating Blaine Amendments, right? So this is a long way to go. There was another player that particularly in that period was very instrumental, and that was the Bradley Foundation. Mm -hmm. Bradley Foundation was there in many respects early supporting research and polling that, that showed the value of parent choice. But then when we hit the lawsuits, which just seemed never ending, they were very supportive, helping get witnesses ready, helping with scholarships through an organization called PAVE so that children who were in the program could stay in the program until the court suits were sorted. And they just have been a major force and remain a major force to this day. And Milwaukee and Wisconsin are just 
very fortunate to have them. I couldn't agree more. And we're very blessed that Bradley's part of this movement and still still leading it in so many ways. In fact, I, as I'm sitting here reflecting, you look at the Bradley Foundation, who some consider a certain ideological bent, but then you look at Mayor Norquist, who was a sort of very strong left-wing liberal, right? And John Gard, who was a labor organizer. And then you look at some of the grassroots folks you had, Zakia Courtney, and then you look at Brother Bob Smith, and you look at yourselves, and just that, and Tim Sheehy and the business leaders, that such a different group of people around the table that is such a powerful way for us to think going forward. I guess now putting on your hat of your incredible strategic thinking, what do you think the biggest threats are for the school choice movement in the next 25 years? Let me talk a little bit about Wisconsin. I think in Wisconsin, and this is not always visible, regulations that choke the programs that divert money from academic endeavors in the schools that make it difficult for parents to sign up, those kinds of things need to be dealt with. And, and that can be a difficult lift. It's not very glamorous, but it really has a lot to do with how the programs function. I also think we really need to get to the stage where legislatures and policymakers look at students rather than schools as having value. A student ought to have the same value no matter what type of school the student attends. And that also is a very heavy lift because of the complexity of school finance, particularly in Wisconsin. We have an unusually complex, constitutionally bound system of finance that makes it difficult for us to get from here to there. I think the prospect of programs being killed outright, which used to threaten us in the 1990s, is largely over. But we really need to create programs that have a constituency. And here's where I know you and I have talked about this many, many times over the years. We need programs that allow all parents to participate, first of all, because it's good policy, but also tactically, that is what creates the constituency that ultimately will stand up and say, you can't take this away from me. This is too valuable and it needs to be here to stay. And you can activate that constituency to do what you need to make those programs work. You know, I agree with that and making it broad enough. So like as Milwaukee was a city-based effort, so was Cleveland. And then the tax credit effort started happening. But then it wasn't until like, in my opinion, Governor Daniels, after Governor Bush did it first, but Governor Daniels doing the statewide effort a broad-based income program, statewide effort, where we now have in Indiana scholarship recipients in every single district, right? Every single legislative district has scholarship recipients because they're private schools all over the state, right? And so making sure that it's not just people in urban areas, but it's suburban areas and it's, it's rural areas, it's towns. We have about 40% of the kids in the scholarship program in Indiana now are not from urban areas but 60% are. So it's doing, I think, what it's supposed to do is helping certainly those who need it most, but it's being very broad. I think that expansion is absolutely critical, and I would just like to see more of it. More parents, better funding, more robust funding, less regulations, more simplicity, more opportunity. That sounds very simple. <laughs> right? <laughs> if we achieve that, particularly when it comes to school funding and based on a kid, so modernizing school funding formula, so it's every kid is worth an equal amount, frankly, in many ways. What do you think schooling will look like in 25 years? I think it's always hard to pre 
check the trajectory of innovation. But what I've always had in my mind, what I would love to see is the kind of ESA, educational savings account model, where parents have the power to spend the money and educators have the freedom to respond. We're seeing much more of that during the pandemic, but I think we've just barely scratched the surface of what could happen if some of the other restrictions that tend to be in many state laws about grade levels and what must be taught and all the other things that tend to favor traditional brick and mortar schools and not necessarily mastery, move at your own pace kind of education. The more those things break down, the more innovation there's likely to be. And, and I believe that, that when educators get a taste of genuine freedom and they can demonstrate their effectiveness to parents, things break wide open. We, we know already from the research that an effective teacher is really, really the critical element of progress. And when effective teachers can band together and offer services outside the current models, mm -hmm. and parents can go after them based on what they want for their children and the results they want and what happens to their children, their employability, their future life prospects, it could be a whole different world. It's mm -hmm. just hard to know where that breakthrough actually happens. So I think that's right. And hopefully maybe like a West Virginia where we've passed a program that is an education savings account program for everyone in the state. Maybe it's there. You know, one of my concerns about now the pandemic is everyone getting back to school. That's fine, but that's just not what parents want. Parents still want some hybrid models. They still want some, you know, the nature of work is going to be different, right? So we're not going back as ed choice full time. We're not going to be in the office eight to five anymore, right? And a lot of groups are going to be like that. So I think it'll work itself out over time, but I think it's it's going to take a state like West Virginia or some other state getting it done right. I think that's right, and that's that's a great reason why it's wonderful to have states doing different things and and trying different things. I still believe in the the state laboratory concept, and the breakthroughs may come in one state and then can be adopted elsewhere. But I do agree with you. Other things that the pandemic has changed have been the telehealth, all the health care, the how much people are willing to go back to work, whether schools are partly online, what else can happen now. It's just hard to foresee. And it's especially hard to foresee if parents will go back to the way it used to be. I think the behavior of the teachers unions has really disenchanted a lot of parents because it's shown that they're really about the power and the money and less about the kids. When I watch what has happened in Wisconsin, and I know this is true in other states, the way the private schools in Wisconsin in these programs have stepped up the pandemic, the way the special needs schools in Arizona have done the same thing, the teachers and the, the staff there have done incredible amounts of work understanding that the children need the socialization, the support, the being with each other in addition to the academics. So parents are seeing differences and it remains to be seen what happens in a year or so when we don't need masks and we can move freely. Well, let's hope we keep with some of this innovation. You know, uh, I'm gonna ask a question which I, as someone who's getting older, hates, but I think I gotta ask it, which is, 
hopefully the next Susan Mitchell is listening to this podcast. What would you tell a young reformer coming up in the movement now? What advice would you give to them? I would try to study what works and why, starting with bill design. What makes good public policy? What is worth standing for? And then I would look at elements that George and I have come to to say how a bill becomes a law. What makes it easier for legislators to say yes and harder to say no? And certainly unity, sense of purpose, not fighting with your friends, all those things are really critical. Well, how do you make that happen? How do you lead a project where those kinds of things are the outcome? How do you move away from the the tendency to wish to negotiate with yourselves, among yourselves, because you think you can't get something and so you don't try. I'm fond of trying to aim quite a bit higher than you believe you can go because you just don't know. You just, you can always peel back, but you just don't know what you can get done. I couldn't agree more. I've always argued that if you say you're going to shoot for the moon, you won't hit it. But if you're going to say you shoot for the sun, you'll probably hit the moon, right? And because you have a, a farther reach and a farther idea in mind. So as we're getting near the end, and I know it's, it's uh, you know, you don't want to get the names and people and all that, but tell me some funny stories or tell me some stories that you remember from the early days. Some, just a couple stories that memories you might have of what some, I don't know, interesting things that people might say, wow, that's different. I don't remember funny. I remember the points where I was scared things were going to fall apart. So here's one of them. We're organizing our very first rally for Governor Thompson, who is running for re-election. He's been told that school choice is very important to the CEOs, and we want to show him in Milwaukee that it's important to this wide-ranging group of parents from all over the, the city. So I do all the organizing. I have my heart in my throat. I'm watching the buses line up. And my good friend, John Gardner, who has taught me all about organizing, shows up at the door with a group of women who want to protest Governor Thompson's welfare policies. And I had told everybody, we are focused. There's no litmus test. We're only focused here on school choice. And I remember getting in the elevator and stopping all these people with signs from going into the elevator and up to the rally. And I said, I said to John, John, if you want to be in this coalition, there's only one thing that unites us. And that's the view that we want more choice for parents. Nothing else matters. So this is the wrong place for this protest. And he backed off. What an interesting story, particularly relevant to today, because I think I'm not sure that kind of that would have happened today in the sense that backing off, because one of the things that's happened in this movement, one of the, the I, I think challenges facing it is while we're united around choice, there are all these other issues that have come into to play where, you know, the coalitions on, on the right and left are saying, well, you got to believe this and you got to believe this litmus test to become more important, unfortunately. One of our rules of the road was it's only school choice that unites us. You cannot bring any other issue into this coalition because we would have blown up instantly. We were all over the map on almost anything else that, that you, could, um, you could mention. 
There was another moment like that I can tell you about when we were approaching the enrollment cap on the program, which would have absolutely decimated genuine parent choice. Instead of parents choosing schools, schools would have been assigned a a certain number of seats and it would have destroyed the intent of the program. That we had a Democratic governor at the time who was very resistant to lifting the enrollment cap. And so we did issue advocacy TV spots with real parents. And we interviewed the parents and asked them, why does this matter to you? One of the the interesting elements was that the then governor had his own son at a private school. And one of the most powerful ads was a black father who looked in the camera and he said, governor, If school choice is good enough for you, it ought to be good enough for me. That ad went up, and within half an hour, the governor was on the phone with one of our business leaders saying, take that down. And we said, when we have a deal. Yeah. And it worked. And it worked. But that was another moment where I I was very worried that we were about to lose a lot of gains and, and we'd not be able to restore them. You know, I, and, and I tried to, to get you to think about funny stories, and I really appreciate you coming back to these stories because, as I remember, you're, you're right, the early days of the movement, there wasn't a lot of funny going on. It was a lot of, like, live and die, right? It was a lot of, you know, I remember the work in Cleveland and then the Supreme Court stuff. There was a lot of high stakes for families, right? And and really at the vanguard of trying to do something radically different, right, in America. So, yeah, you know, those are much more stories that make you think, oh, God, Things could have gone really bad really quickly, but uh, we're not there uh, anymore. Thank God we're growing. So I guess the, the best way to end would be to say, tell me what you think we should all be focusing on as we go forward. All the people who care about parental freedom, what should we be focusing on? What are the one to four key things we should never lose sight of? Putting parents at the center of policy, standing in their shoes and looking at how well policy works for them designing programs that are actually robust enough to give this idea a much fairer test than it's ever had, allowing all parents to participate, working to create much fairer funding than we've ever gotten. I know that that's improving in many states, but we still are not at a point where we look at a student and say, every student has the same value, no matter what type of school that that student's family chooses. And finally, I consider overregulation an underrated threat. Uh, it, it's easy not to see it. It's hard to get rid of it. And it can very quietly choke the vigor out of a good program. Well, and certainly regulations keep, I think, an ossification to certain, certain programs to keep the status quo going. In our home state, one of the regulations is that every school must keep a physical copy of Chief Seattle's letter. And I'm just like, well, hold on. You've heard of this thing called the internet, right? I mean, you don't actually need a physical copy of anything anymore. Uh, but they're like, no, you must have it. And these, these kind of things make a burdensome day for an administrator, right? I got to make sure I have a report filed that says that I have this in there. I have to prove that I have this in there. Instead of saying, look, I can download it tomorrow at a, at a moment's notice. These Regulations are critically important, and people definitely underrate them. If, if you live in a state with a, um, 
an education department that is not particularly friendly to the notion of parent choice. The degree of regulation uh, can be really fierce. Uh, in Wisconsin, we just did a, a review of the requirements. Some of them have a statutory basis. Some of them don't. Some of them are simply guidance. And the schools feel as though they have to follow all of the rules because they're afraid of being kicked out of the program, which could ruin them financially to say nothing of the damage inflicted on, on families. So it, it to me, that has always been a big issue to pay attention to, but it's it's one that doesn't get the attention it deserves. I really appreciate that. And I, and I think all four of those things are, are absolutely important for us to remember. So again, I want to thank you, Susan, for spending time with me today, for sharing some of your thoughts and memories about 25 years ago and, and going forward. Thank <laughs> you.